Thank you for tuning into the Vigilance Press podcast. My name is James Dossie, and I'm your host and the publisher for Vigilance Press. And like many gamers, my very first role-playing game was Dungeons & Dragons. I started playing back in the 70s, which is why I'm very excited to have our guest on tonight. I have Rodney Thompson from Wizards of the Coast. Rodney, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. This podcast was kind of born out of a chat we had um, at Origins this year. Mm-hmm. So it was really nice to sit down. I was sitting down with you and Hal Mangold, and just the things you were talking about with D&D got me really excited. So I, I wanted to bring you on the show and ask you a little bit about Dungeons & Dragons, the fifth edition, and sure. see what we can... Uh, Tell our listeners that uh, they might not have they might not have seen if they haven't been part of the playtest. Yeah, that sounds great. So let me start off by introducing you to our audience. Uh, how did you get involved in with gaming as a hobby? Uh, well, when I was about twelve years old, uh, I guess twelve or thirteen, I uh, met a guy at my high school who was a friend of mine, and he asked me one day, he was like, so would you like to play Dungeons and & Dragons? And I, I was kind of interested because when I was much, much younger, uh, a kid on my block had said, had, had gone and played Dungeons and & Dragons at his friend's house, and or at his cousin's house, and he'd come back and he was explaining it to me, but I didn't really understand what he was talking about, because up to that point, all I had ever, you know, heard of for games was like, video games, right? Like Nintendo games. And so he was trying to describe D&D to me and it just didn't make any sense because he was like, yeah, and then I was fighting these monsters and I took a sling stone and dipped it in oil and lit it on fire. And I was just like, what is he talking about? This sounds like the most amazing game ever. Well, it was still like seven years later before I actually finally got a chance to play. And uh, this guy that I went to high school with started up a, a D&D campaign, and he invited me and uh, my best friend and a few other people, and we played in a uh, an Al-Qadim campaign, a, a second edition game set in the Al-Qadim campaign setting. So I guess I was about 13 or 14 around this time. But uh, that was when I got my start and uh, fell in love with it, played a lot of D6 Star Wars in high school, and then uh, transitioned to third edition in college. Still played a lot of second edition D&D in college. And, uh, you know, I've, I've never put the hobby down ever since. Awesome. Yeah, D6 Star Wars is probably one of the biggest turning points in my gaming uh, mm-hmm. gaming career. I just I love some of the, the new ideas that I first encountered there. Yeah, I'm a huge Star Wars fan and uh, always have been. And so being able to combine, you know, role-playing games with Star Wars was kind of a, kind of a revelation moment for me. And I, it was funny, I didn't even know there was a Star Wars role-playing game until I was, uh, I was on vacation in Disney World and happened to go into the gift shop at uh, the Star Tours ride. And they actually had some of the late... Uh, late West End Games source books there in the gift shop. And wow. I, yeah, I picked one up and I was like, you mean there's a whole role playing game for this? And unfortunately, that was right at the tail end of when West End Games was starting to uh, uh, wrap up their Star Wars line. Mm-hmm. And so I went on this frantic quest that summer to find every West End Games Star Wars book that I could find. And uh, I still, I found, I found a bunch of them. And then for several years after that I uh, continued to play with my friends with just what we had and it, it's, it's taken me many years and it was really only uh, I want to say about a year and a half to two years ago that I finally put the finishing touches on my West End Games collection 
That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I've 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 been. Uh, uh, I remember one of my friends tried to swap me for one of my my original <laughs> my original West End games, uh, Star Wars Core rule books. Um, yeah. He wanted to swap me for one of them. I'm like, nah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I, um, I just I just ran a, a D6 Star Wars mini campaign uh, last summer. We played for about three months. Cool. Yeah. So, um, speaking of Star Wars, and I think we can jump back onto this topic because you've actually worked on the Star Wars role playing game. What mm-hmm. what what role playing games? What projects have you worked on professionally? So I got my start in uh, 2001 writing a source book for the D20 Star Wars uh, revised system that Wizards of the Coast was putting out uh, at the time. I wrote the Hero's Guide, and I co-wrote that with J.D. Weicker, and that was my first freelance project. And I had gotten that project as a result of a website that I was running at the time, which was basically just a, a fan site. And... Um, Chris Perkins, who I now work with on D&D, saw the site and was uh, impressed by the work that I was doing on the site and offered me the chance to do some freelance work. And that kicked off uh, a seven-year-long freelance career, during which time I worked on uh, D20 Star Wars. I worked on Dungeons & Dragons, uh, doing a lot of uh, OGL work at the time for uh, Green Ronin and Paizo and a whole bunch of other different companies. And I did some work actually for West End Games when I was freelancing for AEG, and uh, spent about seven years freelancing before I was hired in uh, late 2006 uh, for the Star Wars Saga Edition lead designer job here at Wizards of the Coast. And so in early 2007, I moved to Seattle from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I've been here ever since. I worked on uh, the Star Wars Saga Edition product line. I was the lead designer on all the supplements for that. And then uh, when that product line wrapped up, I transitioned over to Dungeons & Dragons. Wow, you can't you can't swing a uh, a dice bag in Seattle without hit, hitting a game designer, can you? It is true. There are a lot of us out here. Uh, it turns out. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so now, now, um, I wanted to kind of uh, mm-hmm. before we talk about um, Dungeons and Dragons, and because I'm going to dive down a rabbit hole here and, and ask you a <laughs> bunch of questions. Okay, they'll they'll kind of go in and out to broad from broad to really narrow topics. But sure, um, you you mentioned that you ran you you ran a a D6 Star Wars game last year. What other what are, what other role playing games do you like to play? Uh, well, so for the most part, I uh, I'm actually running two D and D campaigns right now. Mm-hmm. But I also have a third gaming group that we meet every other Monday, and what we do is we rotate through games. And so basically, we'll play a game for one session, two sessions, three sessions. You know, like the D6 Star Wars game lasted about twelve sessions uh, over the last summer, right? And basically, it's our our group is designed to let us play as many games as possible. So we've played The One Ring, we've played Vampire, we've played Legend of the Five Rings, we've played. Uh, Shadowrun, uh, 13th Age, uh, I'm trying to think what else we played recently. Uh, we've, I love to jump into indie games. We played Dungeon World, we played, um, what else have we played? Uh, oh, we played the Mistborn game, we played Leverage. We've, I mean, this is this group, we've only been playing together for, uh, I want to say two and a half years now, but basically we rotate through games pretty rapidly, and we're actually just now wrapping up 
a Marvel Saga, the old card game. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we played a Marvel Saga campaign that was based on the 90s X-Men animated series. So, you know, <laughs> we are we are incredibly huge geeks. And, awesome. uh, but we, yeah, we had a lot of fun with that. Um, and so now we're getting ready to transition to something else. Uh, and we're trying to kind of decide what our next game is. But due to convention season and the fact that I'll be at Gen Con and then at PAX Prime and all that, uh, we won't get it to meet again until basically September. But we've got some, uh, some interesting possibilities on the docket. I believe someone mentioned uh, the old Palladium Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game as being one of our next games. So I'm pretty excited about that. Oh, very cool. I think yeah. character creation is the, the most fun you have in that game. But I've heard that as well. <laughs> I've actually never played it, believe it or not. And so I'm looking forward to uh, at least trying it. But, it, you know, the, the, the whole purpose of the group is to get us to, you know, try and play a lot of different games. Mm-hmm. And uh, that can be tough sometimes with RPGs because people sort of want to view them as campaigns. Right. But we intentionally set out, like, no, no. We are playing this, you know, either convention style or, like, you can do, like, a three-session arc, but that's basically it. Um, and I think my next, uh, the next time I run, I'm probably going to run Fate. So I'm, I'm kind of percolating an idea for a Fate game in the back of my head. Cool, cool. Yeah, I'm, uh, uh, I'm a big fan of Fate, obviously, as people should mm-hmm. know from the podcast by now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, Fate, Fate's been very good to me in, res- yeah. in return. So. Um, yeah. I- I've, I've read the books, and I've been excited to run it, but I haven't had a chance to yet. So I'm, uh, mm-hmm. I also want to pick up a couple of the, like the toolkit at Gen Con and then uh, see what I can do with it. Cool, cool. So let's, let's start talking about Dungeons & Dragons. When did you get involved with uh, the D&D um, side of things? Have you been involved since uh, before 5th edition? So I uh, I did some freelancing during 3rd edition. Uh, mm-hmm. I worked on Monster Manual 5. I worked on... Uh, Dragon Magic and a couple other ones, and then of course I did some third-party stuff with uh, Green Ronin and uh, AEG and a couple other companies. Uh, then when I uh, came to Wizards of the Coast, I was mostly working on Star Wars, but then I also did some work on some of the source books for Fourth Edition. So I did some development work early on, and then when Star Wars wrapped up, I moved over full-time doing design development on some Fourth Edition books. So I was um, lead designer on Heroes of the Feywild. Uh, I worked on the Essentials books with Mike, and uh, mostly it was all all supplemental stuff. So when we started working on the fifth edition of the game, uh, this was my first opportunity to sort of jump in on, on the design of the core game from the ground floor. Very cool. So um, one of the things that uh, made this edition different um, going from fourth edition to fifth edition. Um, actually, that's actually going to talk more about like what what is your primary role in the new D and D game? Um, I, I I seem to remember you uh, uh, you have a pretty cool title. Uh, well, I don't actually know what my real title is on the game. I uh-huh. basically uh, I'm a I'm a designer on the game. Uh-huh. I primarily focused on player content, so mm-hmm. classes, races, uh, stuff like that. I also helped design the core rules of the game, so basically all the base level mechanics of the game. I helped design a lot of that, and uh, I think I'm credited in the player's handbook with uh, leading the rules development. Uh, basically, our our jobs are pretty fluid. Um, there's a constant design development what you would actually call like technical editing going on so we do a lot of those different things and we actually have a really a relatively small team so um, it's probably safest to call me a designer 
but mm-hmm. that sort of I mean, that's only one aspect of what I've I've done on the project so far, and like on the the monster manual which I've been working on basically nonstop for the last month and a half, uh, and then of course a lot previous to that. Uh, most of what I was doing on the monster manual was rules development and number checking and making sure that all of our monsters are you know producing the right experience, or doing a lot of experience design and stuff like that. So it's a it's a pretty complex. A uh, series of tasks to nail under one <laughs> title, yeah. uh, but mostly when people ask, I just say, "Oh, I'm a designer." That's that's the the safe an- answer there. Yeah. So, um, what is it about the new edition that that makes you excited about D and D? Um, I think my biggest thing is I've kind of reached the point in my gaming life, and I, I think playing a lot of different games has given me this perspective. But I've kind of reached the point in my gaming life where I want a game where we can sit down and play, and the game it, it makes it easy to run, and then also kind of gets out of the way, right? Like I, I like focusing on the role playing and the story, and you know even the fights and the interactions and exploring and all the sort of things we call the pillar of the RPG. I like having all that all the mechanics sort of fade into the background, so that we're really focused on things like what is your character doing, what are you saying, who are you talking to, what are you, what trap are you springing, what monster are you fighting, etc. And so. Um, for me, the thing that excites me most about the game design that we've done at this point is because we have such a a simple base sort of resolution mechanic that we keep coming back to over and over again, and we've tried to really drill down and focus on keeping the rules themselves as lean as possible and still accomplish everything that we're trying to do. What's happened is we've created a system where once you kind of learn the basics, a lot of the rules fade away and it becomes sort of second nature for me as a DM to run it or me as a player to play it. Now, I, I do admit I am I tend to be a dungeon master more than I tend to be a player. So for me, it's simply the ease of being able to talk to my players, have them describe what they're going to do in world, and then I can quickly make a judgment call like, oh, you want to climb up that rock face and uh, avoid you know, the spikes or whatever, I'm going to say that's a strength athletics check, right? And I just ask for the check, they make it, and we keep rolling. And there's very few moments where we have to stop and pause and look something up or consider this modifier or that modifier. I mean, we've implemented mechanics like advantage and disadvantage to really quickly sweep up a lot of things that might previously be like, oh, here's this table of a bunch of DCs, or here's a bunch of different kinds of bonuses you could possibly use, or, you know, things, uh, the things we've done to speed up play, I think makes it so that we can accomplish a lot more in a single session and stay immersed in the, you know, the experience that you're having as adventurers without having to let the rules sort of yank you back out of that, uh, that immersion. Yeah, that's one. Of, one of, you actually mentioned one of the things that caught my eye um, when I first talked to you. N- none of the rules have been released to the public yet. I mean, right. it's outside of the playtesting group. Right. Um, but now I have you know the basic rules and the starter set. And one of the things that caught my eye, I haven't had a chance to run it yet. But one of the things that, that I really like is the idea of advantage uh, and disadvantage. Can you go mm-hmm. over that? Um, and, and explain that a little yeah, bit for us. Sure. So, so the basics of it, for anyone that hasn't read it yet, uh, if you have advantage when you make a check or an attack roll or a saving throw, you're going to roll two d20s instead of one, and then take the higher die. So basically, you know, you roll a 5 and a 15, you use the 15 instead. Disadvantage is the opposite of that. When you have disadvantage, you roll two dice, 
and you take the lowest. And this is basically our method of taking, like I said, what used to be a lot of different modifiers, kind of rolling them all up into a single mechanic. Um, it's not a it's not a new mechanic, right? Like the idea of rolling two dice and taking the highest or the lowest is something that's existed in D and D for years now, right? I mean, we saw that in both third and fourth edition. And I'm sure that if I went back and looked through some of my second edition books, I'd probably see it there too. Um, so it's not a radically new mechanic, but what we have done is we've dragged it down into the core rules and used it to encompass basically, um, I think 3rd edition called it, and 4th edition called it DM's best friend, the whole plus two, minus two. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a little bit more visceral than that because it is rolling the two dice and you actually see the two dice go out on the table. It also is a luck mitigation thing where, you know, I, I always joke with uh, Peter Lee, who's sort of my partner in crime on uh, rules development, that he has the worst dice luck in the universe and advantage really <laughs> helps him overcome that, right? Um, and it's it's... It's designed so that if you're running the game and a player comes up with a really cunning plan or gives himself some kind of advantage or there's some kind of environmental effect that should put give them an edge in what they're doing, the DM can simply say, okay, make a whatever check with advantage and that gives them a greater chance of success without also necessarily inflating their bonuses up to the point where they're doing ridiculous things. It's, um, I think it's a really fun mechanic too because it's really obvious and easy to remember as a DM and easy to remember as a player. You're never going to forget the bonus of rolling two dice because you roll two dice and you see them out in front of you. So mm-hmm. I think you know it's, it's designed to kind of do a lot of different things, but in the end, it's just sort of a one of those mechanics that we use to keep the flow of the game moving forward relatively quickly. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm really excited by the idea. It it sort of brings me back to D and D in a way that I I hadn't really focused on D and D in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, one of one of the mechanics that it reminds me of is in Mutants and Masterminds we have hero points. Right. But in D and D you have something uh, very similar, also called inspiration. How yeah. Does, how does that relate to advantage and disadvantage? So inspiration is actually funny. Um, inspiration grew out of a different design need, but ended up plugging back into advantage and disadvantage. And the way it works is, uh, basically, every character has some personality traits and then some character traits that are uh, built in to sort of give your character a little bit more dimensionality, a little bit more depth. And when you do things in-game that play off of your personality traits or your flaws or things like that, the DM can reward you with inspiration, and then you can spend your inspiration later to get advantage on a check or a save or an attack or something like that. And it's very similar in a lot of ways to the concept of, uh, like, Bennies from Savage Worlds or... Um, Fate has a mechanic like that as well. There's all kinds of different games that do this sort of, like, okay, you you did something in the game that uh, was detrimental to you, but you did it because it's what your character would do. Here's a little reward for playing your character, playing to your character's strengths and weaknesses. Right? That actually that mechanic grew out of a, a desire to make. Uh, building characters a process of more than just fitting together game mechanics and all, instead fleshing out the character's personality and how they fit into the world that's a big part of it is you know sort of tying your character to the setting and what have you and we, we 
came up with this idea of you know personality traits and then your ideal, your flaw, and your bond. And your ideal is like, here's the thing that motivates you to be an adventurer. And you need to say, like, okay, my ideal is I believe in defending the weak at all costs. And that's what motivates me to be an adventurer. Um, then you have your flaw, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's sort of your character's Achilles heel, right? Um, I am a compulsive gambler, or I am... Uh, I am extremely reckless in the face of danger, right? These are flaws that um, can get you or your party members in trouble. And then your bond is your connection to the world. Like, I was born in Waterdeep, or I uh, am constantly searching for my long-lost brother, or, you know, things like that. And there, there's simple things that are relatively non-mechanical on their own uh, that were designed to make sure that players understood that a character is more than just a set of stats, and also did it in a way that didn't, you know, ask you to, okay, now create your, write your five-page backstory. Or, you know, I think in a lot of ways we do some inspiration from aspects in Fate, uh, mm -hmm. where basically like the little short sentence. Uh, also, I think, I can't remember exactly, but I believe that there's something similar in the, um, there's an indie system, the PDQ system that Chad Underkoffler um uh, designed uh, the Sorcerer of Zoe and Swashbuckle of the Seven Skies. That's the same kind of thing. It's like a word or a phrase that you use to describe your character. That's a lot easier for players to uh, create and remember than trying to write a whole backstory, right? right? So just these sort of punchy little things that really help define your character, but give them more depth than just, I'm a dwarf cleric, or I'm a human fighter, right? And so we wanted those to be in the game, and then the inspiration sort of grew out of it that we wanted to reward you for engaging that system, and then also reward you in a way that made you feel good, like, oh, I, I put us in a bad position with my flaw, but now I've got advantage, so later, when I really, really need to succeed, I can use my inspiration to, uh, you know, to reward myself. And that, that also creates a sort of nice narrative rhythm. Mm-hmm. That's very cool, and it's something that um, I, I, I'm really looking forward to trying out. I'm, I'm I'm very excited about that. It also reminds me when you when you when you have the bonds for your character. I think bonds were something that were highlighted in uh, in Dungeon World, if not Apocalypse World. I, I yeah, I I can't remember if it's in Apocalypse World or not, but I know in Dungeon World and Monster Hearts, you when you build your character, you pick you know you have your uh, the ties or strings, I can't remember exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's different in, in different games. I, th I think in Monster Hearts it's strings. Um, it's ties to other characters, and that was sort of, uh, that's one way you can use your bonds. The other way I like to use it, and you know, there's a, there's lots of different ways to use it, but one of the things I like to do is, um, before I start a campaign or mini campaign or whatever, I will actually pick out you know, here's a dozen things that I think are going to be really important to this campaign, like characters and places and events and, you know, story hooks. And I give those to my players in advance and I say, listen, you don't have to, but I would highly recommend building your bonds to tie into these different things because I think these are going to be important to the setting. And that that's really paid off for me. Like, I'm running the uh, Tyranny of Dragons adventures right now uh, for one group, and one of my players is like, oh, I'm you know, going to play a, a sorcerer with a draconic heritage, and I'm going to say that my goal is to hunt down um, evil dragons, right? Because I had said, hey, you know, chromatic dragons are going to be an important part of, of this campaign. And so he said, my, my bond is I've sworn to hunt down all you know, evil dragons, or as many as I can, right? And so, 
immediately in the you know in the campaign every time he comes across a chromatic dragon he has a personal tie to that dragon as opposed to you know it's just like oh well i guess we have to kill it because that's our that's what we do as adventurers no like he has said that this is his character's you know goal it's his objective his bond and it really has helped me as a dm keep the story moving forward because my players pitch in to propel the story forward there's no i i very rarely because i use this method i very rarely have to lure my players to the adventure they they seek it out on their own because they decided early on okay these are the things that our characters care about and that just happens to be the things that i had said were going to be important in the campaign very cool yeah so um uh, jumping back out to the, the the broad view again, we we talked about how you have released the basic set and the starter set. I want to mm-hmm. touch on what the basic rules they are. A free yeah. they are a free downloadable document that you can go right mm-hmm. now to the Dungeons Dragons website and you can actually download the basic rules. Um, I've heard some people describe it almost as a free-to-play video game approach. How do you how do you feel about that? Um, it kind of is. I mean, free-to-play in in digital games is a little bit different because typically it comes with like a microtransaction model or uh, you know a pay-to-win model, and that's not really what we're going for with the basic rules. I mean, you know, yes, when the talk about the player's handbook or adventures or what have you, obviously that's content that you you can buy and expand your collection. But our real goal with it was to make sure that there are as few barriers as possible to people playing the game. Uh, uh, so that if I am a new player and I want to learn how to play D and D, I can always go to the website and download this this free thing. So yeah, I mean there is a free to play element uh, to you know if you want to describe it like that. But I tend to think of it more as no, this is this is our way of making our game accessible to as many people as possible. And I, I said this in a a Q and A that we did a while back, but I, I think it bears sort of repeating: how many people really get into the hobby? through their friends, right? Like, I, I know I did, right? I mean, that guy that invited me to his D&D campaign, I would never have started playing D&D if someone didn't bring me in. But one of the things we often hear is, like, okay, I'm a, I'm a DM, I'm running a campaign, my players are 8th level, and someone comes up to me and they're like, oh, I'd like to, you know, learn how to play D&D. With the basic rules going all the way up to 20, 20th level, that person can go download the rule set, make a character, and jump into my game. And so that's just one less hurdle they have to jump over to start playing Dungeons & Dragons. I think, you know, we're pretty confident in the fact that D&D is a really awesome, fun hobby. And if people sit down and play, they'll get exposed to how awesome and fun it is. And all it takes, I mean, all it takes is having that first really great experience with D&D to get people to embrace something that for me and probably you and uh, a lot of the listeners of your podcast, it's something that shaped our lives. I mean, I'm, I do this for a living, but I do it because I started out as a fan and, you know, I'm if someone downloading the basic rules today is the start is their first step on a path that leads them to doing you know professional game design 10 15 years from now then i say mission accomplished because you know it's a great 
it's a great hobby. It's a great experience for people to have. And I think that what we want to do is make sure that there are as few ways as possible for people to sort of off ramp from that. Like, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to spend fifty dollars on the player's handbook, or I don't want to spend any money on this, but I would like to try it out. Well, we've got the basic rules for you to go in and try it out. And you know, the other side of it too is just that because they're so simple and streamlined, it also makes it really easy to say, okay, guys, we want to do a pickup D&D game tonight. Uh, well, let's just download the basic rules and we'll play pickup D&D. And, you know, it's not that complicated. We, we just get it and run. And I think that's another sort of big angle on it, too, is just the ease of access or ease of accessibility is also good for experienced gamers because it means you can just pick it up and go. And there's fewer barriers to getting started to play. Cool, cool. All right, so um, what, one of the things that uh, kind of became news when the, when the basic D&D PDF came out, um, I'm, this, is, this is a little more specific, mm-hmm. there was, um, in part of character creation, it invites you to think about your character's gender identity, and I, I, I think you use different terms in there, but... Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this may be the first time that Dungeons and Dragons specifically called that out. Um, is that true, or is that something that uh... it it might be true? I mean, I don't hundred percent know for certain, so I don't want to say yes. This is the first time. Um, it might be might be true. I know it definitely caused a little bit of a stir. Yeah. So um, from a design standpoint, uh, do you consider do you consider that to be? A successful. Do you even consider that to be a rule? I mean, it, it seems to me that you know it's in the same section where you tell people to come up with a name for their character. So I mean, <laughs> it's uh, I, it seems to be pretty uh, pretty much a, a central core, uh, or it's a part of the core of, of developing the personality of your character in, in the in the rules here. What what uh, what about that? felt like it needed to be in the, in the system and, and do you, are you guys happy that uh, people are, are talking about it the way they are? You know, um, I, I said it a little while ago, but D&D is a it's a game that you know, touches people's lives in a lot of different ways and it, it can shape people's lives and it really is, you know, a it's a game that has done so much for, for so many of us. We want to make sure that as many people as possible have that same experience, and we want, and you know, in order to do that, we want to make it very clear that, uh, regardless of who you are, you know, in real life, that you can have a character that represents your own, you know, sort of outlook on life or visions or whatever. Because, at its heart, D and D is about having the experience you want to have, and we really want to embrace the idea that our fan base and our our players are a diverse group of people and celebrate that diversity, right? And we want to celebrate that in-game and out-of-game. So, yeah, I mean, we, we want to make sure it's very clear that we we embrace our fans no matter who they are. Fantastic. Okay. Um, moving on to... Uh, I kind of wanted to touch on the, the uh, starter set now that that's out. And that runs... Retails, I forget about twenty bucks. Yeah, yeah. And um, my my question for you is actually, where does the starter set fit in? Is this something that you suggest for anyone who wants to play the new edition, or is this mainly an on ramp for people who've never played D and D before? 
it's it's really mostly geared towards um, dungeon masters, and then also people who are looking to have a you know a D and D experience without a lot of uh, time investment either, right? It it is a uh, it is mostly an adventure. Uh, but it also comes with pre-generated characters. Uh, the idea being that we want to make this as close to a pull it off the shelf and start playing type game as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, that means it it uh, is going to be mostly adventure content because that's sort of most of what you need to play. But then there are the pre-generated characters, and of course you can download the basic D and D PDF and use that to create your own characters if you'd like. But really, we like to think of it as um, it's a product that. If you want to try out the game, it's one of your best options for doing so because it is, you know, hopefully relatively inexpensive for you, and it is also uh, a complete levels one to five adventure. I mean, it's a it's a fair amount of gameplay as well, so you can really get a sense of the you know breadth of what gameplay is like in D and D by picking up the box set. Yeah, I have to say that uh, the dice that I got in mine are, are also very nicely marbled. So it's a yeah, they're pretty they're pretty hefty too. I mean, yeah. I I was kind of surprised. So it's a it's a good looking set. Um, the yeah. artwork. This is also my first chance to really see the artwork because I, I missed out mm-hmm. on the on the playtest. Mm-hmm. So I haven't seen a lot of the playtest materials. So when I was flipping through the book, I noticed that there is a very specific style of it, it like a desaturated color palette that most of the artists are using mm-hmm. where it feels there's kind of a um a mysterious quality to everything as opposed mm-hmm. to some of the other role playing games where everything's got really high contrast everything's mm-hmm. really bold um is that something that uh you guys as designers had a say in or is that something that uh is that somebody else's Job. Um, that was that was mostly art direction. Although um, the project leads, uh, Mike and Jeremy, they definitely had a lot of input on that as well. Um, so it was you know it was a group effort. But you know our art directors have done a fantastic job of making the look of the look and feel of the the books and the you know the starter set and everything, making it something that when you pick it up, it really evokes a combination of sort of classic fantasy, but also with our own sort of unique modern D and D twist. It's my hope, and I think it's the hope of the our directors and the other designers that when you look at the book, it's inspiring above all else. Mm-hmm. I have to say, it, it as a visual identity, I was I was kind of dubious um, before I saw it that you know you would be able to distinguish yourself from so many other fantasy games that are out there, uh, even like historical D and D stuff. Mm-hmm. But this really does have a strong set of, uh, of visual cues that. Uh, that seem to to pull it out of the pack and, and make it look quite different, which I thought was really cool. Well, thank you. That's great. I know our art directors would be thrilled to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an artist, so and a, and a somewhat of a graphic designer myself. So that's kind of one of the sure. first things that jumps out at me whenever I look at a book. I start looking at the art. I love the maps, the the hand drawn look mm-hmm. to the maps in the book. Oh yeah, it's yeah. Really our cool. uh, Mike Schley does all the maps, and he actually. Did the uh, the board art for Lords of Waterdeep, which is the board game that I designed. Oh and, yeah, I uh, love that game by the way. <laughs> oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Mike does a fantastic job with with uh, maps, and I I really dig his style. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, Lords of Waterdeep. If you haven't played it, to our listeners, is one of the very few competitive board games that I really dig. Um, I I like it because there's a mystery element to it, so you you aren't just laser focused on trying to beat your opponents. <laughs> you're you're also trying to, you know, 
play to your own strengths without tipping you, you know, the without letting the secret out. But uh, so well, thank if you. you. If you haven't played Lords of Waterdeep, check that out. That could be a whole other podcast, though. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. So um, getting back to D and D, getting back specifically to the rules now. Um, D and D is still, as as I have always remembered it, a class based game where. You have character classes which allow you to jump into the game very quickly by picking an archetype that you want to play. Um, of the classes presented in the un- upcoming game, or in the game now that's out, um, which one appeals to your playstyle the most? It's it's funny. I was actually just talking to this uh, talking about this earlier with someone. My two favorite classes in D anD D are the rogue and the paladin, which are about as diametrically opposed to one another as you can possibly get. Um, I I think I just I, I'm a I'm a mostly black and white kind of guy when it comes to my characters. I've always been drawn to paladins because I I like that sort of uh, sense of like righteous justice that they can mm-hmm. bring to bear on a situation. And I like rogues because I like uh, creative exploration and creative uh, uh, sort of interaction a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I always think of playing a rogue in first edition and I'm always constantly spiking the door and then setting up this rope so that if someone comes around the corner, they'll trip. I mean, I really like feeling uh, clever and tricky when I adventure, and so the rogue really appeals to me from that angle too. So, you know, there's something there's something appealing to me about you know putting a lot of effort to being clever and tricky. And there's also something that appeals to me from the paladin side about you know I don't really have to worry about it. I'm going to go do this thing, and I don't have to worry about my, my character's motivation because you know what his motivation is because I said so. That's why. <laughs> so. um uh, yeah, and uh, I have to say that uh, the Paladin's probably my favorite character class as well. He's like the Captain America of D and D. Yeah, um, I, it's it's no surprise then that uh, my favorite Avenger is in fact Captain America. Excellent. So, um, looking at the different character classes um, as they're presented in the, like in the basic set, mm-hmm. um, is is there a class that you would recommend to a specific kind of player like i mean for novice players is it easier for them to start out as one or the other or do you think that they all have pretty a pretty com- comparable level of complexity um it it really depends i mean we do embrace the fact that different classes are geared towards different playstyles uh and i wouldn't necessarily say it's a matter of experience um, experience with the game, rather, but with the experience that you want to get out of the game, right? So, for example, I like playing sort of tricky, clever characters, so I'm going to pick the rogue, because at the second level, the rogue, every round, gets to hide or move faster or dodge, or not dodge, uh, hide or move faster or um, disengage, which is our sort of withdraw, get out of opportunity attacks type action, which really lends itself well to being tricky and being, you know, doing sort of these clever combinations of like, okay, I'm going to move over here, I'm going to pick this lock, but then I'm going to run away from the orc that's standing next to the door, and it, you know, there's sort of a creative angle to that, and that appeals to me, even though it's actually not a very complex class mechanically. Um, yeah, I, it, it's really going to be one of those cases where I think people are going to want to sit down and actually get some playtime in with them before they can make the call. Uh, we do have, you know, 
wizards are, are a little closer to traditional Vancean spellcasting wizards. Not exactly the same, but they're pretty close. Uh, clerics are actually... Pr- I, I would actually say clerics are probably the most complicated of the four classes uh, in the, the basic rules. So if you're looking for something with a lot of uh, bells and whistles and knobs to turn and levers to pull, that's probably the class that you want to go for. But, you know, it's... I, I would have no problem handing a wizard, a basic set wizard, to... A, a novice player, just because you know, with the explanations we have and with the relatively simple first level we have, I think they could pick it up just fine. Cool. So, um, one and and this actually ties into a, a another question I wanted to ask you. One of the challenges um, of running games, running D anD D, is trying to balance characters who have two very different like gameplay mechanics and. D&D historically, there's been kind of a, a difference in how the fighter and the wizard were handled. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the prevailing wisdom would be that uh, for the low levels, the, the fighter had, a, had an edge, but at the higher levels, the wizard dominated the game. Mm-hmm. Is, is there, is, is that, um, have you, uh, how, how have you handled that in D&D 5th, the, the difference between those two classes? Well, you know, we did put a lot of effort into making sure that those that all the classes contribute equally to the adventure. And um, I would be lying if I didn't say I had spent many, 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 many hours uh, combing over Excel spreadsheets and writing formulas and you know stuff like that to look at like you know combat balance and you know stuff like that. Um, that's a big part of it. But we want all that to be behind the scenes. We don't want the players to have to worry about that too much. What we want players to have is the sort of fun experience. Um, so we did put a lot of effort into balance uh, of the classes. Um, at the same time, you know, it is we do kind of expect that some classes are going to excel in certain situations where other ones might not. Right? So, for example, uh, I think rogues are really good in exploration situations and situations where it's not about hitting the bad guy as hard as you can. Right? A fighter, on the other hand, fighters are they're they're combat monsters. They're really great. So, you know, it it is there is a balancing act between you know total balance and also letting people excel at certain things. And I think we've tried to sort of strike it right in the middle so that you know in a in, in the situation that comes up that your character is really designed to excel in, you do excel. But you know if it's just sort of a, a typical adventuring situation, everyone can contribute and feel like they're contributing equally. It's you know it's not an easy task, and I, I would I would be I would be uh, doing a disservice to the hard work that you know the guys here on the team have have put in with me because we spent a lot of time trying to make sure that everyone feels like they are really you know contributing and doing what their class is supposed to be doing, and it's. It's not been easy because there's also the other side of things that, you know, you might find a, a solution that balances, you know, this class against this class or whatever, but it's an unsatisfying one. So then we also have to, you know, we had to deal with the the constant need to check our decisions against you know, the needs of the audience. And so that's why we had our, our big open playtest and we also had our alpha playtest group, which is our sort of closed playtest. I mean, everything in the game got extensive playtesting and it was just a process of iterating and iterating and iterating until we finally hit the point where we said, okay, we've reached the, the sort of sweet spot between I have unique things that I can do and unique places where I excel and I am balanced against the other classes. Um, you know, it's it's something that I think we've gotten right thanks to the playtesting, but 
for the most part, it's going to be when people out there in the wild start playing with it, they're going to tell us if we did a good job or not. <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually something I wanted to touch on because you were really excited about the amount of feedback you were getting from from uh, from playtesters during that process. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about like how many people were were participating in the playtest and what kind of um, like percentage of feedback you got? Yeah, we got a massive amount of feedback. Um, for the open playtest, we had... Uh, I can't remember exactly how many people we had, but uh, it was a... a six-figure number, <laughs> let's put it that way. Wow. I don't want to get more specific because I can't remember exactly, uh, and I don't want to give you the wrong number. But we had a lot of people participating in that. Well, that's over 100,000 100, people. Oh, oh, yeah, amazing. yeah, absolutely. Um, I can't remember exactly how I got, but it was a lot. Uh, and then we, we were getting the feedback from those folks, and we used the surveying system during the open play test so that we could ask very specific questions but we also left lots of opportunities for people to leave us notes and comments and I will say that as a part of the process we did go through and read those comments uh, which was a daunting multi-week task after every survey um, and then we also had our closed alpha play testers which was a, a more limited group that got to see more things but also had like tighter deadlines and, and to turn feedback around to us again um, I think we said in the in the March to June span where we were finishing up the player's handbook, uh, Pete, uh, Peter Lee and I implemented something like 800 unique changes to the game based on player feedback. And that wow. was in just that three-month span. That's huge. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it, and it, it was everything from like, oh, this number should actually be a 2 instead of a 1, to this class feature doesn't actually function, redesign the whole thing, right? So that that does, ha- I mean, that was a, it was a massive amount of feedback. It was a lot of work. Um, it was 100% worth it in the end because throughout the whole process, we allowed the people that are actually going to be playing this game, you know, people out there in, in the world, it allowed them to tell us what works and what doesn't. And I, if I had it to do over again... I would 100% do it again. I might organize it slightly differently because the first few times we were getting our feedback, it was a little overwhelming. We learned an awful lot about the the process of gathering feedback from hundreds of, the, hundreds of thousands of people. But, you know, when you get your hands on the product, I think everyone will see that that massive amount of playtesting absolutely helped it. Because even if someone... You know, even if we get a piece of feedback that was like, this thing's broken, it doesn't work, blah, 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 and we would look at it and say, well, actually, it does work, what that would do then is that would be a flag to us, and it would say, okay, this person thinks this doesn't work, why don't they think it works? Is there a wording problem? Is there, uh, is this unbalanced? Are they not doing something? The other thing we would run into is, the, a lot of people complained about mechanic X, whatever it is. The problem is actually not there, but an entirely different chapter of the book where an explanation of another mechanic was, you know, confusing or or uh, incorrect. So even if a piece of feedback didn't make immediate sense, we had to dig deeper and look and see, okay, what's the actual root cause of this, and then go address the root cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was one of the most challenging, but also I think one of the best parts of the playtesting process because it ended up giving us a it ended up giving us insights into things that we, if it was just 
us working on the book by ourselves, we never would have seen that. Very cool. So um, you mentioned that you know uh, people complaining this thing is broken, um, and and for people who may not be regular gamers or game in, in very complex systems, a lot of the time. Um, some gamers will will put together combinations of elements in either a character or just a, a set of rules that will create an imbalance in the game or, mm-hmm. or or subvert the intent of the game. What was the most broken thing you guys weeded out during this during that phase? Uh, it's a really hard question to answer because it's a hard question to answer not because like oh there was a ton of broken stuff, but you know going into the process um, we kind of approached this a lot of like the way that that Pete and I approached the design of Lords of Waterdeep, which was we we're going to put things out there that we know for a fact are broken or bad or don't work because we want to get a you know get the feedback from people and and figure out what they think of the concept or we want to see you know if if it, it is actually this thing that's causing problems or this other thing so there were a lot of times where we knew something was uh i won't i don't want to say non-functional but suboptimal let's put it that way or right? mm-hmm. like it's too powerful it's not powerful enough it's confusing we would put things out like that because we needed to test another part of the system or because because you know we just simply had not had the time to implement the right changes on that yet, so that kind of muddies the waters a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and and makes it not very uh, not very easy to answer the question. Um, you know, there were plenty of times where we would do things like, oh, we accidentally created an infinite damage loop here because this triggers this, which triggers this, and now if you hit a guy, you do infinity damage, or um, things like, okay, this spell is clearly way, way too powerful, right? Like, you can just bust entire adventures with it. So, it's really, really impossible for me to pick a a single thing that was like that. And also, just to be completely honest, we fixed so many things that were like that that I they all kind of blur together for me, right? <laughs> right. Um, oh, I, I think... I'll give you an example of a particularly egregious one that is not necessarily the worst, but it, it, <clears throat> it really stands out. And that is uh, the Paladin can convert spell slots into extra damage by smiting. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of the way that we also... Uh, altered our um, multi-classing rules, mm-hmm. it became this thing where the right way to play a paladin is uh, is take the start in the paladin class, get enough levels to get the smite ability, which I think is level two right now, and then multi-class into wizard or cleric or one of the full spell casting progression classes, because then you could go all the way up to ninth level spells and be burning all those high level spell slots for extra smite damage. When we really intended it to be is like, no, no, you burn spells from the paladin class, and we thought about saying, okay, well, maybe you can only spend you know a certain number of spell slots a day on this or whatever. And in the end, it ended up just saying, like, no, the the right solution is not to you know add a bunch of complications to multiclassing. It's just to put a cap on the uh, amount of damage you can do when you smite, and that ended up solving it, right? So you know, you before we solved it, you had situations where it's like, well, I'm a paladin two wizard eighteen, and when I smite, I do. You know, 10d8 points of damage, then 98 points of damage, then 88 points, and just you know, basically burning your high-level spell slots for for paladin smite damage. And you know, that's creating an unsatisfying narrative that we don't mm-hmm. really want. But then at the same time, we didn't want to close off like, well, I'm a multi-class paladin cleric. Why can't I use my cleric 
spell slots for my paladin smites. And so we're like, okay, we can let you do that up to a certain point. We just can't let you overshadow the paladin too much. Gotcha. Very cool. Um, so one of the things um, that we were talking about at Origins that you mentioned, you got a lot of feedback, mm-hmm. um, that, that kind of made it difficult going forward was you um, the definition of hit points. Um, can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, um, as I recall, there were basically two ways that people have been handling hit points, and I think D&D has actually used both mechanics. And one, um, I think you described it as actual meat damage, where <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, where where if you take if you if someone does damage to you and and you suffer hit point damage, that's actually showing like you know you you've been cut, bruised, or bashed. Right. And then the other one is that uh, hit points are kind of a combination of luck, fatigue, and mm-hmm. other things that uh, just run out. And when you run out of hit points, that's when you get hurt. Right. Um, and uh, I think I think you said something to the effect of you were really hoping that the surveys would give you a clear, you know, yes. uh, favor on on which way to go with that. But you actually ran into a quandary there. <laughs> yeah. So basically, um, healing and hit points in general is the only area of the game... I don't want to say the only, but it's the only one I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, part of the game where the audience is extremely divided and almost divided right down the middle. Um, because there are... And, and I don't, I mean, there are people who fall into one camp or the other, and there's probably a lot of people that don't care, but it was easily the most polarizing aspect of the, the game through the surveys, right? And at the end of the day, we kind of had to settle on a midpoint and then say, you know what, if you want to go to a more extreme, we're going to provide you with more options on how to do that. But yeah, um, healing and hit points, very divisive and very uh, very, very much a, a big split. And, you know, it's, it's one of those areas where you kind of just got to find what works for your gaming group and for the kind of stories you want to tell because there's a lot of people that don't want to have to deal with, you know, oh, my hit points only come back at this really slow rate. There's also a lot of people that are like, ah, that's not very realistic that I got, you know, knocked unconscious by a dragon and yet I'm back up in perfect fighting shape the next day. And, you know, it is an abstract mechanic. I mean, hit points are a, a very clear abstraction that can produce a lot of different results. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I wish it was easy, as easy as saying, like, oh, yeah, well, this is clearly the thing that the, the uh, playing audience wants, but this is a case where our, our players were not, they were not handing us any easy tasks. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were not making it easy on us. So yeah, that so actually, that actually brings... I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, we, just, we had to come down in the middle and make sure we provide options for people because that's, you know, that's been a big philosophy for the game uh, so far is make sure people have the options they need to run the game they want. Mm-hmm. And that actually brings up the idea of optional rules. And this, mm-hmm. this is something that I'm not sure if you've answered elsewhere, but um, I know that uh, with the player's handbook and the DM's guide and, and so on, you're going to be um, releasing some... Are you going to be adding some suggestions for optional rules? Uh, how much of that will filter back down into the basic rules PDF, and, and, and what kind of optional rules do you guys have in store? 
So I probably can't get too specific about what kinds there are. Um, suffice to say that they touch on almost every aspect of the game. Mm-hmm. And the reason I can't say is just that we're still working on the DMG, and something that I mentioned now might get cut, or we might design something later to fill a gap. You know, it's it's still in flux. Okay. Um, but you know, we'll be touching on things like healing and hit points. Uh, you know. Classes, races, all kinds of different things. There, there's a whole bunch of them. It's just going to be a question of what ends up in the final book. As for what filters down to the basic rules, I don't anticipate us uh, moving a lot of the optional rules into the basic rules, just because that's really more of an like when you're tinkering with a game at that point, that's a little bit more of an advanced concept that we expect someone who has, uh, say, the dungeon master's guide to be able to handle. Um, but wouldn't make a lot of sense in a you know a basic set of rules that we intend to be the sort of simplest expression and most straightforward expression of the game. So um, I'd say you know most of that's going to end up in the DMG. Well, once again, thank you very much for joining me, Rodney. It was it sure. was great talking to you again. And I look forward mm-hmm. to seeing you again at uh, at Gen Con. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much, and to all of our listeners, until next time, stay vigilant.